0: Well, we uh, we are here to celebrate the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. We do that really every week, every day, don't we? And uh, okay, yeah, that was kind of scary. There was air coming over my head. I didn't even know there was a fan over my head here. So. But really, we we talk about, we focus on Jesus Christ, and that's what it's all about. We happen to be in a gospel now, and when you deal with the gospels, you are talking about the very life of Christ. You get to peer in to those things that were uh, happening and going on at the time. Uh, We're set for a new chapter now in the book of Luke. Uh, This sets the tone for the rest of the story that's in uh, this gospel. It's... uh, Of course, we've had quite the story already, but we're given a section here that we get to see quite the panorama of what was happening as far as the scene in Israel was uh, concerned. And uh, when you think of where we've been so far in the first two chapters, really it's dealing with the supernatural births of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And uh, of course, we saw one incident, which we looked at last week, where Jesus Uh, was 12 years old and that's all we have of Jesus uh, from his infancy to the time of his ministry we really don't have anything but that 12 year old incident which Luke records here and so that's the only information that we have we got in on that but that was rather much when you really consider what is going on at that time that's what we looked at we saw that Jesus knew that he was the Messiah he had to be about the father's business in the temple. And uh, so, and he knew who his father was. He knew he, who he was. He was still going to learn more. And that's what he did from 12 on till the time of his ministry. He kept growing in stature, in his physical uh, sense, and then also spiritually he grew. And out of that passage, we get a great foundation of this gospel. And it gives witness of Jesus being who He is, Deity, Savior, out of that passage and in the, in the previous passages where the angels spoke of Him and uh, Him being the Son of God. So now what we're going to do is jump 20 years, or close to 20 years, maybe like 17 years or so, uh, from that time of Jesus' uh, introduction to people, uh, at least at the temple when He was 12, to now at this time, like 17 years later, and we're going to get into the historical, the political, and and the religious setting just as John the Baptist is ready to come on the scene. And John the Baptist is to prepare the way of the Messiah. Uh, The Jews could never say that when Messiah came, he came without some kind of uh, notice or preparation because he did. He did have the notice. The preparation was done. It was done by this mighty forerunner, John the Baptist. And uh, that's uh, a tremendous ministry that he he had. The whole nation was awakened. And it was dealing with uh, a message of repentance. And of course, when we have this study on John the Baptist, especially here in chapter 3, we see what his ministry was. And it was tremendous. God, once again, speaks through a prophet. That's who John the Baptist is. He's a a, a prophet. And he's representing that Old Testament era as Jesus is moving on into this New Testament era with the Old Covenant being fulfilled in Him. Uh, So Luke now is setting a frame. Uh, He's setting the scenery here for us as we look at this drama that's going to unfold for the next many chapters are till the end of Luke all the way to chapter 24. Um, He's a careful historian, Luke is. He gets everything precise. Of course, everybody who writes scripture gets it precise. But being the historian that he is, and the writer that he is, he gets down into some details that nobody else does, and he does not want this story to unfold on a bare stage. He wants everything there. He creates for us the historical setting. A lot of times when we have um, sermons, messages, you know, sometimes it can be practical things. Sometimes it can be really doctrinal, doctrinal, and theological. Uh, This time, this morning, we're going to spend most of the time, even though we're going to try to bring in some of those other aspects in this, most of the time, this time is going to be dealing with the historical, because that's what Luke is setting here. And if we have this setting put before us on a table, it will help us even know more about how this story develops through the rest of Luke. Even though we know the story, those little details should come out in a way that we have not even thought of before. And that helps us know and love Jesus Christ even more, doesn't it? So that's what we do here. So this time it's going to be a lot of information but I hope it would be information that would make an impact on our lives. It's not just to give you head knowledge, but this this helps a lot. And that's why Luke is filling in on this. So we're in Luke 3 this morning. I have down for the first six verses, but we're really not going to uh, cover all six of those, or at least all six in a very, a, a, really a, a, a deep way, at least four through six. We'll probably get on that next week. We'll touch it lightly. Uh, Why don't we stand and and, uh, grab our Bibles, turn to chapter 3 of Luke. Let's get a blessing this morning as we read God's holy word. Starting at verse 1. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, Trachonitis, And Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priest of Anna and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. May it really, truly be a blessing to us May there be some things here that helps us in our understanding and knowing Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, we, we come into, first of all, number one is the political scene. We get into the politics. And of course, that's a big word today in our society and where we live. But the idea here is to... Identify a context. We've got to set the context. We've gone now through the infancy, through the boyhood of Jesus, and now it's getting time. He's almost ready to present Himself to Israel and the world. Now that's a big thing as He's going to come on the stage. But if you don't have that stage set, then we miss a lot of why Jesus comes at this perfect time. In Galatians 4 4, it says that he was born of a woman. He was born at the time that was ordained for him to come, and it was a dark time. Now we're going to set the context historically, politically, and spiritually. What's going on uh, in Israel at this time? The first uh, two verses here give us the context of John's ministry. It sets up his ministry first, and then Jesus is to come very shortly. Verses 1 and 2 are talking about some rogues here. This is like a rogues gallery on display. And uh, they're really the villains of the age. I mean, these guys are not the good guys. These are really evil, wicked rulers. Does that happen sometimes? <laughs> yes, it does. We know about that. But we know that there are some of them here that who are going to play a part, a role in the story in the Gospels, one of them, and some of them are, are responsible, you know, we know obviously for Jesus' crucifixion. Matter of fact, you can say all of them are in some way. Some of them, even more so. But even in John the Baptist's death, included in here. So we know that in John's ministry, these men were in power when this happens. Historically, I think this is incredible because. This shows the legitimacy of how historical and accurate, how truthful Luke was in presenting this story, this gospel. Because he brings forth men that secular history would have no problem with. They exist. How come people today would say all those guys exist and wouldn't have any problem? And they'd say, well, Jesus never, he never lived here on earth. There's no such thing as Jesus. That's just made up. And he puts it right into the time. If if you're making up a story, you want to be shady. You know, you don't want to give all the details when this was. You know, you don't give all that setting because that can be traced back and say, well, that's wrong. And that's you know, if you if you don't have the, those particular individuals, so it really sheds a, a lot of light here. And it sh- and really it sheds light on a tar- on a very dark time, very, very dark. John's ministry is going to come at a time when the circumstances are bad. Evil times, evil men, a very dark point in Israel's history. So we don't ever want to judge God's power and ability by our present circumstances. When things aren't going the way that we like, whether it be out in the world or in our homes or in our own little lives and whatever, we tend to judge things in light of that rather than God being in control. And we know better. We know that God is in control of all things. But He can do His brightest work whenever it's at its darkest. Just before the light comes. It's dark out, isn't it? But when that morning star comes, all of a sudden the day breaks. And of course, that's what happens here. Same kind of thing I think you can look at historically throughout the church, and I think of the Reformation. It was the dark ages, and then the light breaks. The truth comes out. And it just made an impact on all the world very quickly so this is what's happening here the gospel is rooted in actual history historical aspects are involved here, it's a particular time and space isn't it, and we can gather from this that it's somewhere around 29 AD somewhere in that area, we know the calendar it was converted at that time, and we you know there can be difficult, but that gives us a really close time and Luke is not even trying to get on the chronological as much as he is with what 's going on here to get a feel for this whole thing, and so he brings forth um seven names here in these first two verses uh, one of them is First one mentioned now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar he is the Caesar he is the world leader catch it he's leading the world the roman empire was what the world was about yeah granted there were other nations kind of outside the roman empire but as a whole this is this is representing the world and he is the leader of it he is the governor uh, the world, the word there is the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It's uh, ruling, governing. Um, Luke is really pointing though here about the conditions. It says the 15th year and that helps us know about what time this is. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, we can establish some kind of grounding here of kind of when this is. We know exactly when Caesar Augustus died. say, I don't see a Caesar Augustus here. Well, he was the one who was ruling before uh, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, according to Romans, uh, the Roman records, he died on August 19th of the year A.D. 14. So, according to the Roman records and according to what they would be putting forth in their history, I don't think anybody would challenge that at all. They even get it down to the day. So that was when A.D. 14. So let's say if Tiberius Caesar started reigning at that time, and there are some differences, maybe as much as four years that some people might argue... But this is getting us in that area though, isn't it? Tiberius probably took over that year in 14. It's in the 15th year. Where does that take us to? 28, 29 A.D., right? So that's why we can say this is what time of history this is. This is very historical. The Bible is accurate. So there was Augustus Caesar... He's around when Jesus is born, right? We've already seen that. Tiberius Caesar is the stepson of Augustus. He reigned from uh, A.D. 14 to 37, this uh, Tiberius Caesar. The stepson of Augustus Caesar. From 14 to 37 A.D. You know what that means? For From the time that Jesus was... A teen all through his ministry, and even after that, so put that into perspective it 's a long time for a ruler. you know we have here you think of you know a president that uh, Mosin goes two terms that 's eight years. Um, you know some people tend to go in in uh, different positions in the government, they can be there for decades, right, but there he was, ruling basically the Roman world is what it comes out to be. He was not really a a godly man. There were other ones who were worse. There was Caligula. There was Nero. Uh, So, you know, his mention here is definitely showing that Roman dominion was happening at that time and it was over Israel. Israel there was not a monarchy passed down from Caesar because he has a child and that one's going to be the the next Caesar. You can say, I thought that's the way it operated. Well, they had a Senate. And the Senate actually wanted to pick out the next Caesar after this Caesar dies, that they would have somebody coming in to that. Well, Caesar um, Tiberius here, he wanted to make sure that he kept this and the family. And of course, as the Caesars go, they have their own rules and uh, they go as they uh, move along as the years go by. Um, his authority should have ended at his death. And of course, it does, but yet he wants his authority to kind of continue on down the line. And um, so he kind of chooses the next Caesar. Uh, he was very influential. He was very powerful. He was pretty crafty. So in order to avoid losing this power in the family, before he died, he went and picked out a co-regent here, a co-caesar. So that's that's what he did. The only problem is, and so whenever that happened, and the way that he put it down, this co-caesar, then he's ruling with him whenever he dies, then this guy gets to take over. Well, the only problem is, He died before Tiberius Caesar died. (laughs) So now what's he going to do? Well, he selects a man by the name of Tiberius. Tiberius happens to be his son-in-law. Son-in-law. Now, the historians say that Tiberius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, really there was not the best of relations, really what it was was there was hate there. There was a hatred. Augustus hated Tiberius, but he wanted to be able to pass his emperor's position on down to his grandsons. So that's what he does. He chooses Tiberius. Mates, he makes him Caesar in a like a co-Caesar. So it's going along the way that he, that he wants. As a matter of fact, he adopted Tiberius. So he's a son in law, and then he adopts him. Well, you know what's so great about adoption? Adoption means that a family chooses that particular person. So in a way, adoption is even better than natural birth. You see, you didn't pick how that individual would be when you give birth, ladies, to, you know, a son or a daughter. That's you know, God did that but you you can adopt you could choose who you want to adopt can't you so he had special privileges there it was by choice even though augustus caesar hated him <laughs> so he made tiberius his own adopted son and so he is a co-caesar now the reign of tiberius caesar after augustus caesar dies is linked with a, a lot of trials, uh, a lot of treason, seditions. Lots of Jews were being deported out of Israel all the way to Rome. Now, I don't want to give you, you know, some boring history here. So I have to keep checking in with us. Are, are we catching this? What's, what's the deal about this Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar? Other than he's a historical person. Well, he's in the Bible. Well, why is he there? There's a reason. And of course what we're giving is the the biggest reason is setting the time period here a typical Caesar is kind of like what he would be and of course he had expressions of cruelty even though he wasn't the worst but he was very self-centered and he had an ego and it went mad as time went on and he hindered uh, a lot of the uh, rule that he had in the Roman Empire as he had what uh, they called a reign of terror because he had what was what we call irrationality unchecked matter of fact, it was uh, so bad that it, it was a mind problem that he had. Uh, He was a pagan, a Gentile. He was uncircumcised. He was an idolater. This is not what you want when you are Jewish and you're religious, right? And this is what you have. Now this guy is ruling all the world. Now he's going to break it down to now four of these guys who are kind of local. Brings it down now into Israel. Next guy he mentions is Pontius Pilate. And every one of us here are familiar with Pontius Pilate. Even people who are not Christians have heard of Pontius Pilate. If they've heard anything about the story of the death of Christ. Was Pontius Pilate only seen in the Bible? Was he just a man made up by, the, uh, by Luke? No, this is a real man. By the way, in 1961, now that's 50, What is that, 57 years or something like that, 57 years ago, there was a discovery. A plaque was discovered in Caesarea. And on that plaque, it was a dedication plaque, a dedicatory plaque, and it had the name on it, Pontius Pilate. Now, the Romans recognize him as part of that history, but he's a real person. But on this plaque... His name is mentioned on there because he actually built in the honor of Tiberius. Call this place Tiberium. And Pontius Pilate is is called the Prefectus. The Prefect. It's an official title. It's a Roman Prefect. He was a Roman Prefect of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea all in that area that we know we're familiar with there, and you think of Judea and all in in that one area. Um, He was one of the prefects. This is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, we know, played a key role in the death, the crucifixion of Christ, didn't he? So you have Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea. This is before the time that Christ starts His ministry. These guys are already ruling. They're in place as, as this goes along. So he goes a long time too, doesn't he? From 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. He was there before Jesus started His ministry, and he was there after Jesus had been crucified and rose. So he was there that whole time. So you had Archelaus who had ruled that area for ten years, and then he had four successors. One of them was this Pontius Pilate. Then we look at another one, and his name is Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. Tetra is dealing with a four-arch ruler. There were four rulers all in that Palestinian area, that Israeli area. Um, You think of this Pontius Pilate. He's noted for briberies and insults, robberies. Uh, He just was outrageous as far as the Jews were concerned. And they gave him all sorts of troubles. And of course, he had frequent executions going on without trial. He got into trouble with the Roman government even. Uh, Just ferocious, this Pontius Pilate was. But it was under Pontius Pilate that Jesus was executed by the Romans. So it's interesting to note. Here you have this Tiberius Caesar who's ruling all over and all the craziness that's happening in his reign, but bring it down to Pilate. And there's Pilate mentioned before the time that Jesus will even die. Pontius Pilate has that role. Then you have another tetrarch by the name of um, Philip. We have Pontius Pilate. We have Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee. You have Philip. Tetrarch uh, is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Herod the Great was around when Jesus was born. And he lived to the time of 4 AD, let's say. So, and he's the one who killed all the babies two years and under, right? Right? Well, he has a son. After, of course, he dies, his son and others will then take rule there in the Israeli area. Herod Antipas had Galilee and Perea. Uh, He ruled until 39 A.D. So he was there really all that whole time too, wasn't he? So you read on in the story of Jesus and Herod plays that key role. Herod the Great is Dead you have Herod Antipas here. And that's who that is in our verse 1. Herod. It's Herod Antipas. He is in on the uh, trials of Jesus. He had a mock trial. He mocked Jesus. Of course, he had blasphemous, frightening ways that he did it. He held sort of this mock trial. And he made the Jews mad. And uh, he built a capital city and it was called Tiberius. The only problem with uh, with that though was that it was built on a Jewish cemetery. that is not cool right so this is the kind of guy he is too he flaunted all their traditions he didn't care sacred ground whatever it is you don't you know you don't mess with that kind of thing but he did as as Pontius Pilate and many others did. Um, Herod Antipas is the one who chops off John the Baptist's head. Are we getting the idea of who this Herod Antipas is? John the Baptist is getting ready to come on the scene. Before he comes on the scene, as far as the writing of it here, just in the next few verses, it mentions Herod, which is Herod Antipas. That's who that is. So you, when when you get into a story, when you watch a movie, it builds up characters, right? And you get to learn about them, and then we start seeing action happening. Well, that's what we're doing this morning. So I'm not trying to apologize, but I'm I'm just just telling us every once in a while, because our minds will start going wandering, because I'm, I'm not teaching a lot of theology here at this moment, and I'm not bringing a lot of application in here yet either, am I? But yet, this is very pointed because it has a purpose, doesn't it? That's why God and His Holy Spirit made sure this happens in this way. This is before John the Baptist is mentioned. The execution of Jesus, He plays in the execution of John the Baptist as far as cutting his head off, which involved uh, a promise to a girl who seduced him with a dance. And He said, after that, I'll give you anything you want. What a terrible thing to say. That can mean anything. And she wanted John's head on a platter. Well, he was scared to do that, but he made a promise to this girl, and so it was served up to him. The next one is Philip. Philip is a Tetrarch. That's east and north of Galilee. So we're we're all in that area. Tetrarch, four. They had four arks, rulers. They They play a much... More less of a rule than, of course, Tiberius Caesar does, but they do play a part in all of this. Uh, the region, the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, that's dealing with Philip, um, all the way up the Jordan River and in that Caesarea Philippi area up north there. Is another city named after Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. Philip was a brother, another Herodian. A member of the Herodian family, that Herod family. He ruled that area. Um, there's one other one. His name is Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. Now, I don't know if you knew about it, but actually Texas is mentioned in the Bible here by this city, Abilene. Uh, I, I, Sorry. Zach Whitson's back here saying no. (laughs) Oh, he wasn't? Okay, Abilene. I wonder if Abilene, Texas was named after this in the Bible. (laughs) I bet bet you didn't even know that was there. (laughs) Abilene. Well, that's interesting that he mentions him because there was another Lysanias and he wasn't in that area. And so a lot of people say, see, Luke was wrong. There was a Lysanius, but he wasn't from that area. He wouldn't be involved in this. Why is he in this Abilene? Well, later on, guess what? They do find out that there was another man by the name of Lysanias in this region of Abilene, which is north of Galilee and west of Damascus. The archaeologists have aided us in supporting the testimony of Luke. So that's when you do have those guys that you're not familiar with or don't show up in the history books and all of a sudden it shows that our history right here in biblical accounts is true. And then you go back and look in some of the ancient history and you find out that those guys' names do pop up. And so it just supports again our historical accounts. What am I trying to bring forth in bringing those individuals up? That's the kind of world that was happening when John the Baptist started his ministry and when Jesus started his ministry. It's not a free world for the Israelites. Matter of fact, they're in captivity. They're in bondage. They hate it. The Jews are occupied. They're oppressed. They're possessed by uh, the Romans. They're in in darkness. They're in bondage. And it represents what? Man in his spiritual condition. There's where we can get some application We, too, were in darkness. Israel was in darkness politically, but spiritually. They needed to hear something. Israel was under a dominating power of the Gentile Caesar, ruled by a quartet of petty princes, you could call them. They were all uncircumcised pagans and idolaters. There's no freedom for the nation of Israel. You know, it was a bad condition. Circumstances were horrible as far as they were concerned. They're occupied. They're oppressed. They're in bondage. If you think the Gentiles were bad though, you read a little bit further here, and we see we haven't seen anything yet. They were far worse because there were the ones now who are going to be listed here. They were corrupt in the name of God. The other ones are not even saying they believe in the one true God, Yahweh. These people in Israel say they believe in Yahweh. So we've seen the political scene. Now let's shift to the religious scene. So we pick up the second part. It's dealing with how was the religion there at that time. I think we already know. Verse 1, got these pagan rulers... Verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Ah, have we heard of these guys before? Well, we definitely hear about them at the time of the crucifixion, don't we? Their arrest and the crucifixion. And they will play a role, a key role, in the death of Christ. It's all part of God's plan, though. There's no true religion there. When I say religion, there is a good word for religion. When you think of it, being religion that comes from God's truth, His gospel. Well, they didn't have that truth. The high priest Annas and Caiaphas are the high priest. He said, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! How can that be?" That's what it says in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Wait. We all know there's only one high priest, right? You can't have two high priests. Well, they do they don't. But they actually do. I'm not going to leave it at that. These two individuals here, um, one of them is very legalistic, hypocritical. Be like... Pharisees, and another one is dealing with Sadducees, and you can see there were. That was the kind of thing that was going on at the time. The Pharisees, Sadducees. The Pharisees took it very literal, very. um, uh, You could say they believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in God's word as far as Old Testament was concerned. There wasn't a New Testament at that time, but it was definitely on the way, wasn't it? Uh, although that New Testament is found in the Old Testament as we unveil the mysteries, but supernatural is what one believes in. Another one doesn't believe in supernatural, doesn't believe in resurrection. That would be the Sadducees. There's really no spiritual leadership at this time. You would think, okay, the high priest, they have to be leaders of this. It's been a long time since there's been a prophet since there's been somebody who has spoken for God. The people are waiting. They were sitting in darkness. And before light comes, there's darkness. And that's what God does. He sets the backdrop on the stage in blackness. Darkness. And the darker it is, the more His glory shines. I think that kind of explains things that's happening in the world. The darker it is, the more that God's glory shines. And His people see that glory. They have faith in Him. See, I put a little application in there, right? So, uh, that's what I say. And I bring on these historical facts. Don't want to be letting you go to sleep. But now we have the backdrop We'll go on with this Annas and Caiaphas for a moment. Now, we're, we're a little more familiar with these guys because there's much biblical mention of them, uh, at least enough to know that they play a, a role in, in Christ's death. And, uh, they shared this high priesthood. But first, Annas had been the high priest. That was from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15, nine years or so. So he was the high priest. But see, the Romans played a key role in bringing in the high priest. Don't you think that would be a purely Jewish-Israel kind of thing, wouldn't you? It should be. And they have to come from the Levitical tribe. They have to be from that line. Well, the Romans don't care. They just want to put somebody to kind of lead over the people and, and you know, they can have their religion here. Uh, but they're really representing the, the Roman government being the high priest. Well, see, Annas was leading at this time from 6 to 15. He has a son-in-law by the name of Caiaphas. He replaced him in A.D. 18. i say, wait a minute. There were a few years in between 15 to 18. Well, there were others who came in there and took that title. Um, the, The thing here, several of his sons did. And then Caiaphas, he's mentioned because he's the one that went the longest after that. 18 to 36, to 18 years or so. Annas wielded the power. The Romans took him out of that leadership, but... He's kind of put over on the side. But see, Annas wields all the power. Even when his sons and then Caiaphas comes into place, it's really Annas who's behind all of this. Uh, even though it's a spiritual office, neither of these men knew God. So do you see how we got two high priests here? As far as the Romans are concerned, there was one. But as far as the Jews are concerned, now they have two. Somehow. They were like politicians. And really they were about money and power and prestige, fame. Right? That's what this Annas and Caiaphas were about. They were very corrupt politically and spiritually. And they they were always under the thumb of the Roman rule. Remember, you have Tiberius Caesar. They're the ones who are appointing the, the high priest here. This is when John started his ministry. Look at the priesthood that is in Jerusalem. Where does John do his ministry? Out of Jerusalem. Now that would seem like the most logical place. The temple is there. It's the capital. It's everything to the Jews. And yet he's going to do his ministry around the Jordan River and that wilderness area. That's where he's been hanging out and living there. And you can say, why would he do it there? There's nobody out there. That's right. But the people are going to go to him as one crying in the wilderness now is all this set up is it helping us I hope so I don't want to bore you this week it's a different kind of a message seems like we're just giving facts right make this stick here as we go through this this book Uh, corruption extortion larceny monopoly two things when people would come to the temple, they would do two things, basically. One would be to give offerings. They would bring an offering to the temple. They would also bring sacrifices. That's the second thing. They'd bring an offering. They'd come to the temple. Now, when they came to the temple, you have a high priest here. Annas had developed a very effective... System, we'll say. Quite a system. System that's going to bring in some money. See, if you live out in the Roman Empire and you're going to the Passover, you're going to need to bring offerings, you need to bring some money. Uh, the people over the course of a year actually were taxed 22.5% if you add everything up. This is all kind of involved with this. Um, this temple thing and and the offering, but they would bring what was common to the world at that time, which was Roman coins. And you remember that Jesus, whenever they ask Him, should we pay our taxes? And He says, hey, show me that coin. You remember that? He says, well, whose head is on that coin? It's Caesar. Okay? Pay, to, pay the taxes to Caesar and then... Pay to you know to God, right? So that's, that's what he said. So they, they had stamped on their coins an image of Caesar. That was found in Matthew 22. Really it's it's an idol, you know, as far as especially the Jews are concerned. That's despicable. We're not going to bring in Roman coins into our temple. So it works out great for the high priest Annas. And they would not allow anybody to deposit the coins at the temple in the receptacles that they had all throughout the temple area. You would have to exchange those coins to Jewish coins. Oh, that's where they can make some money. It's going to cost you to make that exchange. I think we've even heard of that kind of situation today. You know, have you ever seen some of the Canadian coins that come across? Find out they're less, a little bit less than what art coins would be. So therefore, you lose a little bit. in the translation there, right? Other people do some of those same kind of things. But do you see what's going on there? They're making a lot of money. They're stealing from the people. They're not really being able to give what they were really giving. They had to buy... More, really. So they had licensed coin changers. And that makes you think of the house of prayer, which was turned into a den of thieves. And so when Jesus came onto that scene, first at his first part of his ministry, and then at the very end of his ministry, he did it again. He turned the tables over, if you remember, right? And they would have the money changers there. And of course, it it, it just made a mess all over the place. Jesus did that powerful thing to do because the people were being stolen from. Annas and his people, Caiaphas, are stealing from the blind. But that was only one half of it, the sacrificial animals. Let's say at Passover, you bring your lamb that you had raised on your property, and you bring that lamb to be sacrificed at the temple. It represents that uh, animal's representing your, your family. Well, every time they would bring a lamb there, remember it had to be without a blemish, without a spot. Well, even if it was that way, I can tell you, Annas and Caiaphas would make sure that... Oh, See that little spot there? Look at that. Can, you can't see it? Look at this. Look at this. they get their magnifying glass. Uh, they probably didn't have those, but they would say, no, no, that doesn't pass. You're going to have to buy one of our sheep. Well, you know what that means, don't you? This sheep that they're going to buy is going to cost a lot more than the sheep that they already had. So now they're trading coins and it's costing them more and now they're having to buy a lamb that comes from there and not outside of the temple area. It would be an exorbitant price. People couldn't afford it. So that's the kind of situation... That is happening. This is Annas and Caiaphas who are running this kind of system. So you have Annas listed first in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. In John 18, if you turn there a moment, we're not going to get into John the Baptist much at all today, are we? Turn to 18, verse 12. So, the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. Now, this is in, like, let's say 29, 30, you know, it's four years' difference. You know, if you want to translate it and take it to 33 AD, okay, um, that's where there's. Differences 33 A.D. actually is probably where the crucifixion was, but the, the people have different kind of thoughts, but we're really close. Annas is really not supposed to be the high priest as far as the Romans were concerned. Who, who's the high priest? Caiaphas. And they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, who was ruling from 18 to 36, by the way, so, but they brought him to Annas. Why? Well, he's he's the leader of all this anyway. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Well, Annas then he can't really tell the Romans, "Hey, we got we got to crucify him. You're going to have to take him to Caiaphas, who is." Known by the Romans, right? So if you jump ahead there in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus by his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I always did it out and open. Everybody saw it. It wasn't in one little corner. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officials standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? This is Caiaphas now, right? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So look at this. Oh, okay, this was Annas. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay. So now he goes to Caiaphas. I got that confused there. But okay, Annas, for, for now for Caiaphas to do what he needs to do to get it rolling, it's going to have to be him who is considered to be the high priest. Although Annas is running the show, officially, there's where we get Caiaphas coming in. People at that time would have known what that was. Now this is the situation that John comes into. This, this is what's happening. The power, the prestige, the corruption. Spiritual matters are zippo. It's in a corrupt political, spiritual situation as far as Israel is concerned. John's going to begin his ministry. This is a crime family. It's a criminal family. And of course on my, my notes there I have the Mafia. The Mafia in Jerusalem. A religious Mafia, I guess you could say. They were the ones who drove the conspiracy to execute Jesus because He tampered with their business Jesus had come in there that week and turned over the tables and all the animals and all the coins and money are flying everywhere. Now we get why that was happening. Annas and Caiaphas are running this mob situation there. Jesus broke it up. You think they appreciated that? We'll get Him later. They sure have a lot to do with this, don't they? Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't agree hardly on anything one thing they could agree on, to kill Jesus. They have already had this in mind. They hate Jesus. And boy, when, he's, when somebody starts messing with an economic system and a religious system, they all get together and they corner Pilate, who is of the Romans, and they got Pilate to agree to execute Jesus. So do you see, does that background help some now as this builds up? The earth seemed given into the hands of the wicked. Job even said that in Job 9.24. The earth seems to be given into the hands of the wicked. Could we say that sometimes? Look at the world situation. You look at North Korea. Or you think of Russia. You think of the enemies that we've had all across the world. And there are a lot of enemies in the United States. And why they are, I don't know. Because we have given and given and given to those same people who we've helped. And they they want to... De- demolish us. And there's some people underneath in the government. We had a past president before who wanted to destroy this nation. At least we have people who want to make America something that had some kind of roots, uh, whether it be, I think, of, uh, uh, of life for babies who are in the womb. And supporting that and and uh, of course, I think of the economy that where it has actually been ballooning up now, you hear all those reports, so that in a lot of situations, things look a lot better than they did. I think it 's maybe kind of a slowdown, but things will happen. Uh, things can change, uh, but at least there 's some bright spots amongst all this darkness and all the conspiracies and all the what do you call it fake news that 's going on in, in, in the world against. Uh, righteousness, for the most part, sometimes I would say the darkest hour of the night is often preceding the daytime, and those who know God they wait for the consolation of Israel. Do you remember a man that we saw a couple of weeks ago who waited for the consolation of Israel Simeon I think of. John the Baptist's father, mother, Joseph, Mary. There must have been times where they despaired. We can have that. But they knew what they needed. And it wasn't even a better political realm that helps us. It's nice to have laws in the right and proper place and representing righteousness. We we want the this to all represent who God is and what righteousness is. We should want that. But what they really needed was what we see here in Luke, and this sets us up really for next week. At the time of Annas and Caiaphas, as that as those names are mentioned, look at here, look at what we have here. The word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness it's time it's time for the revelation of God to be spoken to the people isn't this refreshing when you see this the light just comes on what they need is the word of God in this dark and political and spiritual corruption the word of God came to John that should affect us like a beam of light coming into the worst darkness. It's like fresh air coming into trapped miners. And all of a sudden the light just opens up. That's what these people needed. The word came to John. What the world needs when these times come, the times of poverty and everything else, and say, we need to do this and do that. But ultimately, no, we need the word from God. A man who preaches God's word, this is John the Baptist, it wasn't his own word. It's not ideas that he's proclaiming, but it's God's word. This is really where it is to go. And you'll see he came into all the district around the Jordan, not to Jerusalem. Not to where you'd think that's where He would go. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus preached. That's what the church preached. The apostles preached it. We preach it today. Repentance. To believe the gospel truth, to repent. He sets up this repentance mode to these people who didn't know how dark they were. They had a problem, and it wasn't so much politically as it was spiritually. And he's away from the establishment. He's not a part of the system. He's not a part of Caiaphas. He's not a part of Annas. He's got a message, message of forgiveness, and he will address people in every age that they need to have their sins forgiven and they need to repent, to admit it, to see the spiritual poverty and to confess that and say, we need a Savior. We need the Messiah. And for His ministry, that's what He's going to do. And of course, that's what this is what sets this up. And of course, from verse... 4 on to 6 is where we are going to hit into next week as he preaches this and the coming of God's salvation. Look in verse 6. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Those who are His will see and experience that salvation. Those who put their trust in Him. Grace, mercy comes onto the scene of death and darkness. It sets people free. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this light that came into a dark world. This is the hope. This is what we have. And no matter what our circumstances are in our own lives, at, in our jobs, and our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, church, wherever that may be, and all aspects of our life, we look to You. And You are our hope. You are our light. And thank You for that, despite any kind of circumstances that make it look different. Thank You for helping us see this salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen.